Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Polymath Experience. I'm your host, Polymath. And today, I'm introducing you to someone who I kind of consider like a guardian angel of the space. You can always expect a meaningful and well thought out contribution for him from him. His empathy and his kindness and his open mindedness have no limit. And he's known, among, among other things, as the co-founder of ArtStyle, which is arguably the number one uh, community in, in the Middle East. And I knew instantly upon meeting him uh, that we'd be friends for a long time because he basically embodies everything I value in people. I've been looking so forward to this conversation. I'm so happy that this day is finally here. Uh, Rahim, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. This is probably the most humbling intro I've ever had. So I really, really appreciate it. I think those those words were very grand and majestic. So I'm, I'm, I'm privileged to be here and thank you for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And they're they're also true. Like you were very highly recommended. Uh, I knew you and then and then you came recommended by Ten Eight, our our friend in common, who I who mm-hmm. I appreciate a ton as well. Man, you've been busy busy these these past few days. How was uh how was London? How was uh how was FBS? It's it's been absolutely crazy. I feel like uh it's it's kind of nice to see you even in like the most bearish times of, of the Web3 space that you see like all these Web3 events kind of like really pop up all around the world. So I traveled to London for Zebu London, which was an NFT focused conference, but it was more on the builder side. And I think it's quite important to kind of go to these, contrary to what a lot of people believe in this space, they look at it like from a very corporate point of view. But I think at the end of the day, you have to realize the tokenomics, the business structures behind any project, whether it's like your art, like, you know, like whether it's art blocks or whether it's like your PFP projects, whatever, there's like a business behind it. And just like learning the ins and outs and what VCs are talking about or what are the gaps with like security when it comes from a top level, a holistic approach. I think it's kind of nice to surround yourself with people who are very well versed in the field way before a lot of people who came into the NFTs like myself. So I love going to these events because I find myself in rooms with people who are pretty well known um, way before like the NFT space popped up. And I think there's a lot of knowledge to to absorb on that end. And then come jumping to to a future blockchain summit FBS has been like absolutely crazy. So that, that conference happens every year in, in Dubai compared to like last year, like it's almost like six to seven X bigger than it was last year, which is absolutely bizarre if you think about it in, in, in theory, because last year, Things were a lot better, um, but like I was, I was, I myself like living in Dubai, where I know like Web three is is doing really well. The regulation is kind of very pro it. I was shocked when I went at the event. The amount of protocols and chains and and people building like gaming protocols and metaverses, people like creating. Like I was absolutely shocked to to kind of see like such a big turnout all the way from from the exhibitor end to seeing so many people involved um at the end like it was it was like i was i was blown away so that has been like really nice meeting some people from around the world i met like a bunch of people from from australia from new zealand i met the team from horizon labs from animoca they were all here so it's been it's been quite amazing quite hectic at the same time but i absolutely love it it's it's really cool like it's the first time 
where in a sense this bear market doesn't feel like a bear market because there are still a lot of people building who don't even mention it they're building as if the market was normal and that's what it looked like on your, in your in your videos yeah i think it's you know it's like a cliche thing everyone keeps saying that this is the best time to build but it is true like because if you're able to to plant the foundations right now then when you have institutions or or projects and brands all the way from fashion to music to cinema to anything are that are be going to looking into the space they will want to reach out to people who have like a good fundamental knowledge in this area it's funny because i had like a very big realization in the last 2 days which which is something that i never like really thought about that i realized that all of us in the nft space are kind of a a, a lot more rarer of a commodity than all of us realize in the crypto world because i went to this conference and i met so many people i basically got three uh, discussions where we are going to I'm going to be meeting these people because they want me to join them in a consultancy uh, uh capacity or like an advisory capacity and this just happened like in a day and i was like whoa and the realization the realization i had was that a lot of these crypto folks are still not familiar with the whole nft space at all but they realize the value of it because they realize the value of web3 and ownership and decentralization and i was like whoa this is like quite like an untapped market because like you obviously have everyone talking about mass adoption in web3 so they're talking about the the general public but we are not talking about the people in the the crypto space which is 98% of what the whole web3 space is Oh man, that's so interesting. I don't know. It it felt as if it naturally had you were in crypto and so you noticed what NFTs were, but I, I didn't I didn't realize exactly what do you think the size is or like the proportion between people in crypto and people in in NFTs? I would I would say like the the NFT space has like if you're talking about Ethereum for example, there are like Eight to ten thousand wallets that are trading on NFTs, which is nothing, which is literally a drop in the ocean. Just to give you an example, in April when when PayPay launched, PayPay had about hundred twenty thousand holders in a matter of like four to five weeks. Like so, just like look at the scale of that, right? And like we've had maybe okay, maybe back in April we had like max twenty thousand wallets trading, and that's the entire NFT space. And I'm talking about PayPay one coin, which had like around like. Hundred ten to hundred twenty thousand holders in a matter of like five to six weeks and stuff. So that just like shows you that, and you still see like you know like you know when when uh, all this ETF noise that's happening in the space that you have like such volatility in in the market that there is influx and outflux of money happening, which you don't see anymore in the NFT space, even with big news, even if there's an acquisition of like a gaming studio or like something cool being announced, you don't see things pumping like. Like we didn't see like a crazy ridiculous pump when when the Pudgy Penguin toys were announced, which you would have seen in in twenty twenty one or twenty twenty two. We didn't see that, but you're still seeing that. Oh, like you know, you had that you had that fake um, ETF news that was all over Twitter a couple of days ago, and the charts went up. And like you know, so you don't see that in the NFT space, which just kind of shows that how much influx of money there is in crypto compared to to NFTs. I had a real bull market moment. I think it was today. There, there was a because the artifact team hasn't really communicated a lot directly to the community. They've had a very corporate type of uh, of communication these past few months, and I saw that Zaptio had done a, um, a space yesterday with Leap 
that inspired a lot of people. And I went to look at the chart instantly expecting like a 20% or 30% increase because that's what would have happened uh, if we'd been in a bull market. Nothing, zero, nada, we're not there yet. I think it's interesting, but like I would, and maybe this is like a level of hopium in it, but I think in some ways, I feel like a lot of the market has stabilized. And I think that's great to see. Like, you know, you we've seen like, like for example, clones being between the range of like 1.1 to 1.25 for a couple of weeks now. You've seen board apes being around that 24 ETH for a while. So if anything, I think for like I've been saying this for a while, which kind of sucks for the people who are going to get the brunt of it. But like a lot of these co- collectibles have to essentially have like a big influx of change in holders of the right people getting in for the right value they provide. So if if Artifact is being seen as a sneaker project long term or like a apparel fashion project that at some point, all these holders who got in it for the wrong reasons, sadly, especially if they bought it at like, you know, peak levels have to unfortunately exit this position on, on the basis of actual people who are into sneakers and the fashion line come in. And that's when you'll have people like holding it like really, really well and being like, okay, I'm in it for the long term. I know what this project is building. There's way less downside. Like I think there's way less downside now on a lot of the projects uh, on the, on especially on clones and doodles side. Like I feel like there are like one, one to 1.2 ETH uh, range. Of course, I'm saying this relatively, and I've, it's funny we say that because we are all a bit privileged in the crypto space, but I think there's less less downside. Even if they drop by 50%, it's only half an ETH in retrospect. It's not as much as like, you know, having lost like 97% of like all-time high, what we've already experienced from your Moonbirds to, to, to a lot of other crew cats and a lot of these other projects. So I think it's a pretty decent time to, start or at least be on the onset of placing your bets on who are the teams that you're looking at, you know? I do agree that there's less downside. There's not too much downside in ETH, but I I can't yet guarantee that there is not more downside, like more significant downside in in USD values. I could really still see like a, a significant uh, drop before we start to to get back on 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 track what's your top three what are you, the projects that you're eyeing at the moment that you think those are my bets for the next bull run some of my biggest bets for the next bull run is is art art in general i think is the only space where if we were like really being honest with ourselves the only place where nfts has solved a significant problem has been on the art front so art is like a lot of art blocks collections a lot of artists are definitely some people I've like really been uh, collecting or placing my bets on. But if you are speaking on the project end, to me... No, anything. Well, I, well, I would just say on... So I'll get, I'll, maybe I'll give in both categories, right? Uh, I think that would kind of help. So on the project side, I would say for me, any project that is building outside the, the Web3 bubble is where I think I'm going to place my bets. And by that, I know a lot of people already have plans too, but I've not seen or I have like a, a, a level of confusion, which hopefully will clear over time. But my top bet is um, I definitely am like a big believer on on the Board APL Club. Uh, I just think that if, if there is one project that has made noise outside for better or for worse, 
outside the space has been that like if you tell people about nfts like they know what board apes yeah. are uh, but they wouldn't know like a lot of other projects they wouldn't know what like an azuki is or something so i feel like there's like an element of noise that board apes because of all the celebrity stuff or all this other stuff that had gained so i think that's my bet my other biggest bet even from a portfolio allocation point of view is uh, pudgy penguins i think uh it's a no-brainer to me i think just because like they're building like a bigger ecosystem outside the space they're going at like a very nice mass market way they've kind of hitting all like verticals from like a mini like you know online gaming side of things because people loved playing club penguin back in the day you have like the toys element they're going down like you know with some like uh, food stuff with like their cookies and everything so i think that's definitely a very strong bet of mine because with my ape i obviously just have one ape with but with my pudgy assets i have a lot of my a lot of pudgy ecosystem assets so that's probably my biggest allocation in in my portfolio so these are my top two my top three i have a bunch of projects that i feel like are competing in there i would say onivores chimpers clonex and doodles are the four projects that i'm like okay like these would be the pl- place where i i place my bet and see what happens because i feel like all these projects are building something that's beyond just the hype web3 space and i think that's the holy grail of where this space needs to go and i think on the art front i think there's going to be definitely a bunch of generative art projects that are going to do well uh some of the the curated art blocks collections i think are definitely grails to look at and then you have like artists like shavon uh photographers like ty lakey cat simmered obviously artists like dk motion of course. Uh, and I think one of the biggest artists right now is Rafik Anadol with like the acquisition of his artwork at MoMA. Uh, I think those catalysts are, are going to play a huge role. So those are some of my interests on the, the art front. You just taught me that it's only force and not one force. I've been calling it oh. one force in my head for, <laughs> for a long time. Hey there, it's me again. Um, if you're enjoying the content, you're going to enjoy this because you're going to have the ability to support us. I want to tell you about our partner, Wasabi Protocol. It's an option-based protocol that allows people to make bets on certain NFT collections. But that's not all, because what is right now NFTs could be anything in the future that is tokenized. They are on the brink of powering one of the most important layers of the future financial markets. I'll give you a couple examples of how you can use it right now. Imagine you have an NFT that's gained a lot of value because there's been a speculative hike and you want to keep that NFT because it's dear to you, but you also want to capture some of its value. After it's increased a lot, you could bet that the price will decrease by staking a little bit of capital and capture some of that value on the way down, which means that you get both of those aspects that are important to you. You get money, but you also get to participate. And the second one is, if you're convinced that a collection is gonna go up, you can bet on that by risking some capital and not the price of the whole asset if you don't have it. Go check it out. The links are in the description. Uh, wasabi.xyz slash r slash the polymath experience. Thank you so much for checking them out and thank you so much for using that referral link. If you do, always do your research. Only use tools and amounts that you're comfortable with. Remember that all financial investments carry risk. And back to the episode now. I really need to start... 
I suck. I had Br- uh, Brian Brinkman as a previous guest mm-hmm. and we had a great conversation and it's, I feel like I should have a lot more of these because you guys have a great eye for art and, and not only a great eye, because it's not, it's not enough to have a great eye. You also have to really understand yourself and, and collect for the artist and for the art and not for the expectation that it's going to do well, which is something that I'm still struggling with a little bit. Yeah, I yeah, I, I I agree with that. I think there's no doubt about that. And I feel like this is what this space kind of had to flush out a lot of people who got in it uh, because of there was like a lot of attention. And I think it's completely okay. I, I know a lot of people demonize it. I don't think if people were there to buy these people's art for whatever reason, I think there's nothing wrong with it. I always say that you either buy art or you collect art. And those are my words, my definitions. I'm not saying these are the official ones. But what do I mean by that is when I'm buying art, and this is usually me buying it on like a very surface level. So I'll see a particular color palette or like a concept or uh, maybe I had a conversation with the artist. So these are pieces like, I'll be like, you know what? I just want to own them. They resonate with me or they remind me of a moment in my life. I'm not going to like dig up history and be like, oh, what was like your last sale and things like that. And these are pieces I buy just because I'm I'm able to and I enjoy it. Uh, so I think that category for me is different. I think there was a huge a group of people that were in this category in 2021, 2022, I see nothing wrong with it. At the end of the day, if if there's a market for people to buy art, there's, there's no argument there. Then I believe there's the collecting side of it. That's where you're looking at it. Okay, I'm collecting this art. I love it. I'm prob- maybe going to hold it. Maybe like five years, 10 years later, I'm going to sell it or auction it off. Maybe for my personal benefit or maybe to actually highlight the the artist in some way and kind of accelerate their journey and this is where i feel like knowing the history of why they're creating and what their story is and what their narrative is that's where it kind of plays a role at least for me when i'm buying art i like this distinction let's backtrack a little bit because you were telling me about your your background before and i like from molecular biology to design to filmmaking like it's such a weird and atypical journey and it feels almost perfect for getting someone into into the space because it attracts like misfits it attracts people Mm. who couldn't really find a couldn't really find a a nice way a nice place for them in the in the previous paradigm what was your hook into webtree what was that moment where you how did you discover it and what made you stay i have a very good friend of mine from high school um, his name is Ridwan. So he and I went to like school together. We had like a band together. We were in like science classes together. We've traveled a bit. And he was the one who reached out to me, showing me a picture of a moon cat and being like, if stuff like this can sell for $3,000, why don't you like look into this space? And like, and I, I'm pretty sure if there was anyone else who sent me that, I probably would have not looked. But like that friend of mine, he's probably like one of the smartest people I've ever met. He's been part of multiple startups at like a very young age. And every time he worked there and he left there, that those startups ended up being like acquired by bigger companies or they ended up like completely less skyrocketing. So he's one of those people that I I look up to in life a lot. And like the moment he told me, I was like, okay, let me uh, look into it. Uh, so this was, I think, around like January of 2021. And then I've kind of like snooping around and I was like observing. I had like a lot of uh, photography elements because I used to be a fashion photographer before. But I was like, 
I was still confused about what the whole model release is going to be around about the rights, whether they are with the, the model or with me. So I was like, you know what, I'm not going to put out my photography content. I ended up putting some of my digital art out right around the time when the people sale happened. I think a week or two after it. And like suddenly like, you know, like people were interested in my art and that was probably like, I can't even explain. I think it was one of the most beautiful feelings I've ever had in my entire life. And I say this because when, when I used to be a freelance photographer, people would always tell me uh, that must be so amazing to, to work for yourself and have your own schedule and things like that, which it absolutely was. I've always enjoyed working uh, by myself because I have like certain ethos and certain time management things and or just like the way I like to work, which I'm able to control because it's just me there. However, there was an element at the end of the day, I was still working for clients. So I still had to meet deadlines or be like, hey, it doesn't matter if it's your best friend's wedding. We need this project done by like X, Y, Z date. So of, of course, like I could pick and choose my projects, but I was still tied to yeah. certain clients and stuff. However, when I ended up selling my art, that was like the peak of that because I was like, I created this art. So the, this art piece I had, it was called um, uh, Garden of Eden, but it was done almost in space. So there was like almost like a tree in, in the middle of the space and there was like this ocean and there was like this astronaut rowing into uh, and going to that tree in a boat and stuff. So I was like, it's it's so wild that I just created this piece out of my out of my imagination. It's like the most abstract thing ever. And there's someone around the world who's like, you know what, I'm going to pay a couple of hundred or like, I think a thousand, thousand five hundred dollars for it, which was like, okay, this is wild. Uh, so I think that really got me hooked because I was like, that is the day I really felt what being independent really, really means. So I would be like, that was my biggest hook to be in this. Oh, I love this. It's, it's really, it's really inspiring. And, and we have that in common that we believe that Web3 is, before anything, a human connector. And and to have it illustrated in such a way is, is amazing. One other thing that you said that I love and what that I think uh, means, says a lot about your character, you, you were telling me that music is another person in your life. Mm. And... I can take it as face value and that's and that's awesome. And you were telling me about the styles you love and, and it's so diverse uh, and interesting like you are. But I also think that it shows a certain sensitivity that I think is important to succeed in this space, whether it's for collecting or for buying things. It's good to not just act on your brain and on your analytical thinking. I think it's important mm. to access that other part of you that mm. you have. And I was wondering if, because sensitivity is not something that's very easy to nurture in, in our society and, in, and, and especially in men. And I was wondering, is, is this something that you actively have cultivated about you? Is it something that at some point you try to maybe rid yourself of? you fit in more in society what's what's been your relationship to that sensitivity beautiful question wow uh it, i think this is the first time ever someone i think has gone the closest to understanding when i say that music is a person to me what it really means and i think you're the first person to like really understand the depth of it so i really really appreciate uh that understanding and observation and and this question um so I feel like I've I've always had this in me to a certain degree. I've always kind of uh, identified myself as as a very empathetic person. I would also say that I've been very fortunate enough to be surrounded by friends and family from a very young age 
that helped me cultivate it. And especially when it comes to being a man, like, you know, you have society always telling you the other way around. Uh, but I think growing up, I had like two of my closest friends uh, were these two girls. And I think there was like a lot of, a lot of my understanding of what, of what emotion is or what expression like really means or what it is to be human actually came from them empowering it for me and never asking me or expecting me to be something else. Whereas I had like a lot of guy friends who kind of would do that. So I think those two people kind of played like a very big part in my life, helping me to, to cultivate it. So I feel like in some ways it was always there, but like I had people to cultivate it. And of course it's, it's, there are times where it's obviously not easy. People obviously love to put other people in boxes. Uh, so it's a, it has its own, own challenges, but I've been, I've been, I'm one of those people that I believe in being authentic to yourself and I am uh, very true to who I am. If people resonate with who I am, I would be, would be like the closest of friends and stuff. Uh, and if you don't, it's, it's completely fine. We are not cut from the same uh, thread and that's okay. You can be, or you can associate with yourselves, uh, whoever you want to do with, with so, but if we don't vibe, we don't vibe. No hard feelings, and I wouldn't want to waste my time with them. I don't expect them to waste their time. We don't have to sit and convince ourselves. I, yeah, I just feel like I'm, I'm kind of pretty authentic to it when it comes to that. What's What's really mind-boggling about you is that your authenticity, even though you mostly communicate via text format, seems to transcend the digital. Because I've seen you have takes have opinions that voiced by someone else would have created a form of backlash or a form of, I oh, don't know what you're talking about because it, it doesn't fit into their, their view of the world. But somehow the way you portray yourself on the internet and the way you express yourself seems to transcend the format and people see the authenticity and it, and it digs them it, it it allows for them to dig into being a more authentic person and how they respond, which is, I don't know, there's a, there's a story, there's a case there that we need mm -hmm. to, to dig deeper in. No, that's, that's, that's very nicely said. I really, really appreciate it. I think, I believe that it, it, there was this awakening I had like a couple of years ago that let's say if you and I, we have an opposite view on like something that's very crucial, okay? On like an humanitarian front. Let's say it's very crucial and I'm completely against on something that you said. The issue becomes if I shun you out or if I remove you from my life or like, you know, I'm very aggressive to your take, I feel like it it doesn't fix anything. It doesn't add any value because I can sit and talk with my friends and like we can be why we can vibe with like on a on a humanitarian issue and be like, oh my God, I totally agree with you. We so get it. But that's not fixing anything. That's not adding anything because we two are already on the same page. The actual conversation I would want to have with would be with someone like you because we need to fix that gap. We need to realize that am I misunderstanding this or you are misunderstanding this or where is it coming from or why is that nuance even there to begin with? So I have this, I have this tendency to like really sometimes even actually try to, to be conscious of it and be like, okay, if there are people who don't agree with this or who don't see this, why is that? And how can we find a middle ground to kind of have an effective communication so that even if this person feels like uh, uh, they don't want to publicly on the internet admit that they were 
wrong or right or whatever that they actually go away from the conversation and go on Google and search what I said or the conversation that we had. And I feel like that's that's very important because I was having this discussion with a friend of mine last night. I think one of my biggest learnings through life as I've grown older is the concept of, I feel like the entire world tells you that everything is black and white, which is like the most like ridiculous statement I've I've come to realize that people put you, you're either part of the red pill movement or the, the blue pill movement. You are either one thing or the other. And I think like more often than not, that's not the case because there is like, we are like complex beings with so much cultural uh, differences and, and ideas and ideologies. And I think it's completely bizarre to kind of put people in boxes. Like growing up, one of the things you, you would always hear that there were either, you, you are either left brain or you're either right brain. Either you're analytical and logical and like nerdy and geeky, or you're like this creative, free-spirited person and stuff. And I feel like I was one of those people who were kind of a mix of two. And I was like, wait a second. I, I love maths. I love science. I'm very geeky. At the same time, I, I love music. I love dance. I love cinema. Like, why is it that I'm being forced to be in a, in a particular box? And I think, I tend to think that a lot whenever I'm trying to converse, that I'm like, if I'm just going to get the same people who I know are going to agree with me, there's no point in having this conversation. Like we can sit and be in that echo chamber and what is it that really doing? But I think transcending into people who don't see the world in the same way are the people that we need to reach out to. Even if you agree or disagree, that doesn't matter, but I think it should ignite a thought for them to be like, you know, huh, I never thought about that, you know? I do. It's beautifully put. And it's it's the only way for growth. And what I think people fail to realize is that there's no such thing as status quo or as stagnation or we're in constant equilibrium mm. between and we're we're going back and forth and and if you're not learning you're de-learning you're on mm. you're, you're if you're not growing you're you're reducing that's what's happening that's that's why it's really important that what you're saying be shared because we need to learn to have those conversations and what I found, I used to have a huge ego. I was really, really insecure when I was younger. And, and I developed a huge ego that was fed by my intellect. Mm-hmm. And I had strong, I was smart. And, and also like on the emotion side, like I understood people. And, I, and so I could spin things that would make people see how I saw fit. But when you're doing that, you're closing a very important door that allows you to learn from the people that are that are around you because mm. but when you're being open-minded like you are and being somewhat permeable to outside feedback you're in constant growth because you have your own data set made of your own experiences and it's being fed constantly with mm. the data sets of other people and with their own lessons and it allows you to have a much faster and much more efficient mm. feedback loop and when someone who's being closed off is only going to grow 1x you're going to grow 100x when you're mm. when you're keeping that open and absolutely we need more people like you and like myself on the internet to have those conversations without judgment without evangelism and trying to like push an agenda and push a certain way of thinking Mm -hmm. and allowing that you may say something and it's planting a seed it doesn't matter if this if the tree doesn't grow Mm -hmm. uh, instantly it can take time and it will no i'm i absolutely agree and and this is also this is where just going back to what i was saying earlier i don't think the burden is on on people trying to 
only force themselves to be open-minded, but it's people on the other end as well. It's cultivating that environment that we let people who are not open-minded to be like, you know, how can we get this person to be open-minded? One of my favorite books I've ever read, which I believe that every single person on this planet should read is how to win friends and influence people. And it talks about, it's, it's, it's such a beautiful book. I read it like every couple of years and I, I understand it on like a deeper level. And they have this whole bit that people essentially at the end of the day, identify themselves with their thoughts, with their beliefs. That's what human beings are. And the moment if I come in the room and I, disagree with your thought i'm not disagreeing with your thought i'm dis- disagreeing with you as a person and and going to the laws of biology self-preservation kicks in you have a fight or flight response so it's almost like a biological psychological conversion need for you to to fight against and be like no you are wrong and i have to stand my ground as a self-preservation uh, uh tactic all the way from a from a mental level to a biological level and i think it's like the moment you you realize that that at the end of the day, that people are, whatever beliefs they have, whatever thoughts they have is, is, is a lot more nuanced. There's a reason for that. There's an environment for that. And I think you have to kind of like break it down of how can we like really fix or work around it to get this other person to, to listen and have an open mind. Or why is it that they have a closed mind? Because that's not how uh, human evolution actually works. From a biological point of view, we are wired to, to, which is what survival of the fittest is, is that we are, we are wired to, to be able to adapt, to have the ability to adapt. Some people do and some people don't. Certain microorganisms do and some don't. But we have this innate thing in ourselves to adapt to our environment. And if there's anything that's inhibiting us, why is that? Where is it coming from? And how can we, we, we change the power dynamic over there? I think the issue is that love is not a big enough component of our socialization because when you are loved within your home or within your social circles when you're when you're a child you develop it from the inside and so if i have deep self-love and you tell me that this or that belief that i have is not actually accurate and that you tell it with love too that you're not telling me oh you're an asshole because what you're saying Mm -hmm. is not true then there's no problem i'll listen to you I remember having this this conversation with uh, with someone who I was quite close to in the business field and and I came out of, she was a, a, a mentor to me and I came out of it, out of one conversation we had feeling like really not very good because she was so like tough. So, and, and I told her like, hey, I, I didn't feel so good after after that meeting. And she said, yeah, but we don't have time to make you feel good. Or I don't remember exactly the words she used mm. because it's it's business. And I think that's what's wrong. It's that because we are in this, oh, this is Twitter. So this is the accepted behavior. It's cynical and it's, and it's, and, and it's business. And so for business, we're after efficiency and productivity. Whereas actually all of that is just human connection. And so whether you're in a work format or whether you're talking or playing a game or, or doing whatever, you need to act from a place of open-mindedness and from a place of, of love and of understanding that people are going to be like whatever they are and, and it's not against you and you shouldn't be against them and you should just live and confront and have those opposing views and, and with kindness. Beautifully put. I absolutely, absolutely agree. Ah, I'm excited for this one. When we were preparing this conversation a few weeks ago, you talked about the three deaths 
that concept being a reason, one of the reasons for people to put uh, touches of their existence on on the internet. Can you can you like enlighten me? I'm just gonna sit back and relax because I love this part. <laughs> Amazing. Um, so uh, m- many years ago, this was I think in high school or college. I had this thing. So I used to have a band with the same gentleman I mentioned earlier, Ridwan, and we ended up putting our song on YouTube. We had like a heavy metal band. We ended up putting it. It has like maybe two thousand, three thousand views. But like I love going back to it every couple of months and just looking at who are the people listening. And I love doing that because you have like the most obscure countries that pop up uh, that like you wouldn't hear about like European continents and like, you know, like South African continents. And you're like, whoa, like I didn't even know this country existed. But there is a person out there from that particular city who decided to like listen to this song for like two, uh, two minutes and like 35 seconds. And you're like, there's something beautiful in that, that you don't even know if this person speaks your language or who they are how old they are, but there's a connection. And I, I used to love that. And I used to, after that happened, I would always tell people to put a piece of their specialty art on the internet, just so that it could immortalize them as a human being, because art is an expression and it should be immortalized. And it's funny because then, then the whole blockchain thing came and then everyone's like, huh, we should have like provenance. And I was like, that makes, makes total sense. I've been talking about this for the last like 10 years since I was in high school. And then I came across this, a concept which I, I heard it in a podcast or in a YouTube video. I'm not quite sure, but it was essentially talking about how there are the, in in Mexican culture you die three times in your life, and the first death is the the moment you lose the will to live, and this could be because of like a particular trauma or any any major incident that happened in your life. Uh, the second death was your actual physical death when your heart stops beating and your your brain stops functioning when you're clinically uh, declared dead. The third one is when the last person who's ever known you would ever say your name. So for most people until until and unless you are a famous celebrity or any any famous person, the last person to ever know your name would be probably your your grandkids, your great grandkids, maybe a generation or two. But after that, very likely people wouldn't know who you were, how tall you were, how did you sound like the, there's like no, there's no, no proof of you left on, on planet earth that you ever existed. And I love, like when I came across that, I, I was like, I want to prolong the third death of, of mine. And I'm just like fascinated by the idea. It doesn't come from a place of like ego or like fame or something, but I just find like I look at it from like like a science point of view, right? Like your galaxy is like millions of years old. You have like millions of galaxies out there in this grand universe. Out of that, we are in this Milky Way. We are on this planet Earth. Out of like like you know seven point two billion people, you're this one grain of sand. And like I just feel like there's there's some beauty in it because there's in in the midst of so much chaos of Big Bang Theory or whatever it is that like things moved around for you to exist. And it just I just find it bizarre that that thing just like stops existing. So I kind of just became obsessed with this idea of of prolonging my death. And I think it's a it's an interesting concept if if you are an existential person uh like me. I think there's some some beauty in it. I actually had like a my uh, an art piece I made. It was called sowing seeds. And it's essentially it's 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 a skeleton in in a forest and there are flowers growing 
underneath, like through the skeleton. So they're coming out through the rib cage um, and they're glowing and they're like beautiful blue, red color flowers. And the piece is called sowing seeds. And it's around the idea of like sowing, like, you know, everyone talks about doing right by people about with your family and your friends and your spouses, but like no one talks about like leaving a piece of you behind that actually adds to the world that you leave an impact, even if it's just one person that like, you know, it actually has like a, your, your existence had a meaningful uh, impact on the grand scheme of things. And it was around the idea that even after you die, you le- you sow a seed that sprouts into like a beautiful flower or like this glowing flower that kind of leads some sort of beauty on, on planet earth. I love this because when, when you were talking even even after we briefly talked about it last time, I still had that third death as a um, ego perspective of mm-hmm. you want to prolong that because it will make you feel good and valued that people will still be talking about you. And then as you were talking, it made me realize that if you're a beautiful person, if you've worked hard to become a good person and and to be able to share it and to plant those seeds like you're beautifully describing then it makes even more sense even on a like a evolutionary perspective mm-hmm. for you to plant those seeds and what better soil to plant them on than than on the blockchain absolutely i absolutely absolutely agree i've been going down the balaji rabbit hole recently and and the network state and in and in the book he's talking about I don't remember exactly how he describes it, but blockchain is a basically tool for history because any event that happens on the blockchain is going to be there as long as there is electricity in in the world. It allows all of us to have meaningful impact and for it to be and for it to be recorded for eternity. And what I've I loved what you were saying also in our conversations because it touches back on that point that yes, there is blockchain as an objective source of history, but we still need basically the UI to interpret it. Mm. And and you were talking about interesting like events that happen around some some projects and I and I wanted to see if you'd indulge me in 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 recovering some of those and what that inspires you at the moment. You were talking about that. You know the fact that Doodles, for example, uh, bought their IP from a from a holder, and that Artifact chose something different. and And I think that in the current that we're living in, there are events that will be talked about in history classes in twenty, fifty, hundred, two hundred years. What, from our perspective, can you kind of project project these events will be that we'll still be talking about then? Great question. I absolutely love this. I think I uh, this is this is a very interesting insight I had when I was in London. So I was attending uh, William Mapin, who's like the anti-cyclone artist from Artblocks, his talk at uh, one of the gallery exhibits he had for his new collection that's actually on auction right now. Um, so he, uh, he and like a couple of other people were on that panel. And there was something that was like very, like I never thought about it, but it, it seems so obvious when the moment, the moment, uh, she said it, and she was talking about that in, in 2021. Everyone was talking about how uh, artists, uh, like it, this, is great, and like auction houses and galleries are like this evil corporations that are just like eating money in the middle, and it's the artists who need to be independent and provide value and this and that and stuff. And I think over time, a we realized that there's a lot more art galleries and auction houses do 
then just take that chunk of money and stuff. The other thing that she said, which absolutely resonated with me is, it's such a bummer, I don't remember her name, but she was like that art galleries are... Are, are very important in this whole blockchain ecosystems because they are the only ones who are actually actually recording the, the, the history of what's actually happening in this space and kind of putting it all together and kind of exhibiting it and providing like, what does that history like really mean? And I was like, whoa, that's a very beautiful way to put it because you need you need these these institutions to contextualize all of this because like everything exists on on the blockchain everyone's individually owning that data it's transparent but you need facilitators in the middle to kind of contextualize all that independent information otherwise that information doesn't mean anything um and that's how basically basically what like a lot of innovation in science is you have your facts but you take those facts and you take one fact and you mix it with the other and then you come up with different theories and then those theories are what like the rest of the world is dependent on and i was like that's a very beautiful way um uh, to put it and stuff like like you know like the the recent acquisition of Rafik Anadol's piece by Museum of Modern Art is a very great example why you need these moments because not only are they recording and establishing a huge step forward in us moving into this digital realm but it's also legitimizing it for other institutions and 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 galleries and i think this information is kind of very tricky and hard to to find going back to just like what what you were talking about of how uh doodles had like a different approach to to acquiring their ip and artifact had a different approach and board api club is actually doing it uh, uh differently it's we need institutions in in the middle whether it's media houses whether it's journalism or or whatever like creatively this can be organized in but these people and these companies are are valuable because they push a collective narrative rather than an individual narrative. And a collective narrative has, in some ways, a lot more weightage than than singular people. Yes, you can have Drake talking about his music and you can have Taylor Swift talking about her music, but music as a concept is a way bigger ideology. It goes, it goes from like, crazy like you know like a couple of like uh, uh centuries where people started like making like sounds in 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 their civilizations with utensils all the way to to classical music to to what electronic music is today and i feel like that history needs to be recorded and formulated by certain institutions who recognize who who put definitions and it's and it's it's such a it's such a thin ice to walk on because this is also the moments things get messy because then we are starting to put definitions or what history really is in, 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 in the normal world we've had, like you go to the West and the West talks about the history of the world in a different way. You go to the East in a different way, but now you have an element of the blockchain that kind of proves history with an element of, of factual information, but you still need people to funnel that information that can be contextualized in a in a way more readable format than looking at blockchain transactions and being like 325th block matches with this person's wallet and yeah it's just like you need a lot more people in the middle to contextualize it on a ui and ux basis i i wonder if it would be possible to create a sort of historical layer to the to the blockchain because you know when you add up subjective perspective the more you add them on the closer you get to objective to objectivity mm. to and that's what the the wisdom of the crowd is if you have a, a bowl of beans and you ask a thousand people how many beans they think are in that bowl 
you're likely to get close, like by averaging their perspectives, mm-hmm. you're getting, you're, you're nice, likely to get closer nice. to the truth. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a really, uh, really cool concept. And it's something that's, I've started to use in my project management because if I have an idea of a concept and I push it towards people and I take in all of their feedback on it and make it evolve, I know that that concept is going to be a lot stronger and a lot more likely to find its ground in the market that is disconnected from my own subjective perspective. And I think that by combining the information that's on the blockchain by having hundreds or thousands of people giving their view on an event or on a series of events and then probably using an AI um, layer to transform all of those subjective components, I think you could end up with a thread with a Mm -hmm. timeline that could be very interesting and less biased than having someone tell a story this is whoa this is you've just blew my mind i actually whilst you were you were uh, telling me this i actually popped up my phone and i wrote the 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 line that you just said of the more subjective opinions we have the more we get closer to objective reality whoa this is probably like one of the most (laughs) profound things I've, i've heard in a very long time because it makes sense on every level from all the way from science to psychological to cultural to to humanitarian everything i think yeah i think you're definitely on on to something because yeah because like bias is is a huge issue and and you usually see this in a lot like i always talk about like dubai for example is a city that's like so different to the rest of the world and it's biggest if if there was one reason why i say it's different to every place in the world it's just because it's a 30 to 40 year old city and majority of the city didn't exist because of that and just because of that reason the the nuances of what culture what history what what um, a type of people they are that are here or what racism actually would mean over here or what like certain practices would mean or what culture really is is so different over here uh, to the rest of the world or how in the rest of the world because every world has had a history with a particular civilization of a particular uh, 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 religion or a particular um, race or something but Dubai is one place because it's such an early uh, city it does not have any history so we don't have any overarching uh, uh civilization or any 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 particular parameter kind of dictates dictates the culture of this space yes it's in it's in the middle east you have islam as like a very big uh, cultural and religious component to it but like being in dubai and traveling to all different parts of the world i've come to realize that Dubai is a lot more open to other cultures than we actually see in in the West. And I'm not saying this as a positive or negative, but I'm trying to break it down why that is. Because in other countries, and I understand to why that is, um, removing removing the, the the right and wrong element from it is because in 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 Dubai you don't need to have these conversations of trying to educate people that oh. All, all skin colors are same or all people from different religions are same. You don't need to have these conversations because if you were being born and raised in this in this country, you were already exposed to that at the age of four. When I was like like in, in school, in, in, in kindergarten, I had people like who were Arabs. I had people who were like Americans. I had like, you know, like I had white friends. I had like black friends. I had like, like you know, like uh, people who were from China. So you had people from all around the world where 
you know, like we, we celebrated every single culture, whether it was Christmas, whether it was like Ramadan, whether it was St. Patrick's Day, whatever it was, that was such a normal that even Dubai, like the Burj Khalifa, like you'll see that they, they, they celebrate everything. They wish everyone Eid Mubarak on, on the Muslim holiday. They'll wish Merry Christmas. They'll wish Independence Day to like different countries around the world. And I think it's, it's, it's so interesting to, to see that uh, uh, just coming back to what you were saying, because I went down a crazy rabbit hole, uh, is having that different, different uh, subjective opinions lead to lead you to get closer to the objective truths. Beautifully put. I absolutely love it. I'm glad you do, man. Dubai is is such an interesting subject of conversation because you don't get any neutral perspectives on it. No one has a neutral opinion on, on Dubai. People love it or they hate it and what it represents. Mm-hmm. Every single person who lives in Dubai that I know loves it, has nothing mm-hmm. but praise for it, loves living there, loves what, what it does. A lot of people who are outside of it don't. And I, I, I man, it's so tricky because like there are things happening in Dubai around Dubai that, that don't really fit with my personal values. And there are other things that I find so appealing and attra- and attracting, attractive because there's a population of people that every single person who talks highly of Dubai is someone who I highly respect, mm. <laughs> and and so it's it's hard to find the because it's it's shaping up to become a very important place for Web three. How do you how do you view that unfolding? It's very fascinating because. Just to your previous point, I I I follow this gentleman on YouTube called uh, Anti Profit. I don't know if you've ever seen his content, but he's a he's a super interesting guy. Anti Profit. I would I would uh, advocate to check him out. He is I think uh, he's probably one of the smartest individuals I've ever come across uh, in a very very long time. And his whole idea is that his goal of his entire YouTube channel is not for you to to change your mind or be part of the red pill or the blue pill movement nothing like that he's like i want you there's a beautiful video he explains it and even in the video the way he explains it it's so eloquent where he talks about that i want you to either have a realization that your views are wrong or i want you to double down on what your views are so that when you're trying to convince other people instead of just screaming at them you can actually come come and tell them why you believe in that from an acceptance point of view. And I love that. And he's pretty interesting because he's also someone who likes to be anonymous and he wears this beautiful white mask while doing all of his videos. So he's like, I just want, I don't want the fame around it. But so I find that fascinating, obviously, because in Web3, a lot of people like to be anonymous. Uh, but just coming down to the the Web3 side of things, I, I definitely think like there's so much scope for Web3 in rest of the world not just in dubai uh especially outside the 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 north american continent and i say this because like you you look at like all the big tech companies from apple to to tesla to like google or any of these big tech giants and they all came from the west and one of the reasons was that for for a lot of decades earlier, they started getting onto the path of educating themselves and building better cities and building better education systems that all funneled to having a bunch of like really smart people build really smart things. I guess we leave on to how uh, uh, they did it in some ways. But one of the reasons that a lot of other countries in the West, uh, in the East, weren't able to do that because they were still 
recouping up from from colonization and and regimes and a lot of other f- issues that have existed with the 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 world history and it's only now that a lot of countries in the world have become stable have become independent or have had enough resources uh from other countries and themselves all the way from agriculture to to money to to tourism where a lot of countries have the ability to build things now however they have been behind north america just because they were late to the game for a lot of like the internet related things but like with web3 you have all of a sudden that because this whole technology is so new and people who are building web3 essentially crypto people are scattered all around the world that all of a sudden this is not centered around that okay these companies or these brands or the next big chain or next big product can only come out of uh the US or Canada or any of the 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 western centric countries that it's all come down to merit because history and when it comes to art history everyone talks it from the the lens of europe uh when it comes to tech history everyone talks it from the lens of north america but these things don't have to necessarily be so centric around a particular bias and going back to what you were talking about earlier that i think with web3 you can have people from from the middle east from asia building things and and dubai kind of in the last 10 years uh, having born and raised here i've kind of observed the kind of focused a lot on two things in in the last 10 years a lot is a tourism and b has been uh, uh tech and with with them realizing the the potential of what web3 and decentralization and transparency can do uh they've been doubling down on it a lot and i would say there's an element of religion and culture also in it and i'm basing this off of no fact uh, but i'm just saying this as an observation because the the islamic culture is very much about is when i used to work as a as a freelance photographer some of my favorite clients used to be uh, uh emirati people who are like local to uh dubai and the reason i loved working with them is because a lot of their their work culture comes from their religion and in 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 religion it they they believe that let's say if you worked for a project of mine and i owe you money if i keep this money with me it's it's forbidden money it's like uh, like it's wrong for me to keep this and i'm going to be punished for it and i have to give you this money as soon as i can otherwise it's wrong for me to keep it so i would have clients i would have all these other clients from rest of the world who would make me chase for money for weeks and months and whereas when i worked with like people from this region i would f- finish my project today and they would literally pay me pay me the the next day so i think there's this whole uh, ideology in its essence about transparency and honesty that comes uh that is there in the culture that kind of and this is a this is something that's coming to me as i'm speaking to you that i wonder this plays a big role in it because there's there's a lot and like blockchain is obviously about the same two things that i wonder one of the reasons it's being as- adapted so much in this space is because there are some ethos of honesty and transparency and giving power to the individual people more uh because of the religious and cultural belief of of this region and stuff well this is a quite an interesting realization i had while uh, speaking to you it ties beautifully into what i was thinking as well of dubai whether you like it or not is physically very well positioned to play the role that it's trying to play right now because it's in the center of everything like it's it would be hard to imagine a place that would be better connected to europe the us asia and and mm-hmm. africa like it's 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 right there and also because 
of its diversity, it means that, I don't know, I, I'm imagining a sort of shape that starts from the ground and kind of like powers up into the network. Mm. Into mm. And, and so it, it feels like a perfect place for uh, the type of uh, endeavors, initiatives that we're having in Web3 to to be born and, and to thrive in. No, I absolutely, I absolutely agree. Uh, I just realized that why did I start the whole anti-profit thing? And I don't even know where did I end it. But essentially in, in, in one of the bits, he was talking about that in some ways you kind of have to pick and choose your your pros and cons regardless of what you decide to live in this world. Uh, unfortunately, there is no perfect place where you can get everything, what everyone wants. And he was essentially talking that, oh, whether you live in Bali, whether you live in Dubai, Singapore, uh, New York, there are some things that you have to give up to get certain things and stuff. And I think if you look at it from like a, a, a holistic approach, where you're literally making like a pros and cons list, um, and I'm and I'm in no way saying that any country or any city is is perfect or can be, but then when you're putting down your your parameters and you're like, okay, um, crime rates and things that you would assume, things that are the the, the top of the barrel when it comes to to survival of, of humanity. And then you're looking at crime rates and, and sustainability and, and um, uh, like, you know, just like basic fundamental things that you think security and like things that you think are important to human survival that you look at, you're like, huh, I would, I can see why I could, I could find myself living in, in Dubai. And I think that's, that's very fascinating to see how that with web three, uh, Saudi Arabia is also kind of absolutely focusing on AI and web three, a lot as well they got like people like Neymar and like uh, Ronaldo are playing for a sports club over there so it's it's been an interesting shift in the entire world dynamic of what the future is going to be like and it's it's an interesting time to be witnessing all of that I guess and, and you're making me realize that yes there are things around um, the UAE right now that are very obvious that you might not resonate with but in the rest of the world those things exist and have existed for longer and we don't even question it because time is time is uh is doesn't really exist and 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 if you're gonna try to look at things from a moral perspective or from a value perspective like europe was the birth of slavery mm. so no one should want to live in 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 europe and then the us was well, a second place of slavery and a place of absolute carnage when it comes to war crimes. And, and so it's, it's a little bit hypocritical to look at other places and say, yeah, they're not doing it right because I don't think there's a single civilization that's actually done it right until... I agree. Until it's, it's like a self-preservation thing, right? Like everyone wants to believe where they are or where they're choosing to, to live is the right place. So it's easier to be like, that's a wrong decision. That's a wrong decision. And that's fine. For me, at the end of the day, I think there's nothing. And I say this because uh, my, my parents are, are from India and I, and I know how the country works. I go there like once a year. I know the, the, what the country struggles with, the potential of it, but the, the crime rates, the poverty or, or like the struggles that people have. When I go there, I realize that what problems and struggles really fundamentally are. Um, like I have like some of the craziest stories, even in my family that once you hear, you're like, there's no way this is not out of, out of a movie and stuff. So for me, like, I think the, the top thing that I feel like no one can convince me otherwise is the safety aspect of it. Like I, I just, I think like safety to me comes above 
every single thing. And, and I, I just can't imagine, I just can't imagine myself living in a place where that's not my, my priority to the point. Like, I think I've become like way too privileged with the idea of what safety really means. I was speaking to a friend of mine in us and we were talking and her connection was bad because we were on, on Google meets. And I was like, why don't you get closer to the router? And she was like, no, I have to keep an eye out on my daughter. Cause she's playing outside. And I was like, but she's playing outside. She's in your house. And then she was like, no, but I still have to keep an eye uh, just to make sure that she's safe. And I was like, whoa, like, like it didn't even occur to me that I was like, what's the big deal? Like, you know, you can let her play. She's pretty grown up to not to know that she can't just like cross the road or something. But that wasn't her concern. Her concern was the safety of her kid being watched by someone or or whatever. And I was like, whoa, because it's something that like, like, like it just like doesn't happen over here at all. And I, which is why I'm never exposed to it. So when she told me, I literally had goosebumps and I was like, I was like, I can't imagine. And of course I again say this from uh, a place of what privilege means to me or where I am. I'm not married. I don't have kids and everything, but I'm just like, I just can't imagine ever being in a place where I have to constantly worry about my, my spouse or my kids, whether they're going to like school or college or I just can't like uh, that life sounds like absolutely like <laughs> full of anxiety to me that I'm like, Oh, I don't know what's going to happen in the school or if there's going to be like some crazy shit happening there or something happens when they're coming back. Like that idea to me sounds so scary. And that's why I, I love living in the city. I love traveling all the way up, all around. I love London as a city of like culture and like the amount of history and, and art they have. But like when it comes to like ease and safety and security, like I think, Dubai is, is Dubai for me. <laughs> Man, I really need to come and visit. One thing we have in common is that we're both disproportionately driven by empathy. What for you is the case for empathy in the world we live in, especially in business? And do you also think that maybe it, it, it at least in part comes from a, a slight place of privilege because we, we can we feel like we can be empathetic? It's a very interesting thought i've never thought about that what if it comes from a place of privilege because in in some ways there's a part of me that believes that empathy is like way more more deep rooted in in just how our our biology works like when when we are when we're talking about it from like a textbook biology a biology point of view that when a mother gives birth to to an offspring that there's this connection that she feels the need to to protect it and i think that protection comes from a, a place of empathy that you know how much this person means to you or if this this little offspring is hurt that i'm going to feel that pain so there is a huge element of it that comes from our biological need and i would say a lot of times and i would say to a degree that i think we are all born with it and we have it and i think a lot of the way the world works kind of suppresses it to the point you think you're not empathetic or it's a skill some people have don't have whereas you've always had it but it's been suppressed so much at like such an early age that you don't realize that that it it exists but i think especially in the corporate and the the web3 world or any any business world i've come to realize and this has been one of my biggest learnings in the last 2 years being in this space 
has helped me immensely, immensely to the point like I've never even thought about that. Because when people would talk about empathy, I would talk about it from a, a more, more personal point of view about like friends and like family and like relationships and, you know, philanthropy and things like that. But it's only when I started building in as a, a company in this space, because I don't have a business background. I don't have like, I'm not like a, as, as familiar with a lot of things uh, with with the finance world, with the accounting world that other people do. I I used to be an, an analyst years, years ago, a science analyst, and then I became a, a creative person. So I was into photography, filmmaking. So I, I, I used to work solo. I had like a small business, but it was me. And like, I used to hire some people around, but like I never had like a full-fledged business. So a lot of things of what running a business is or what, client acquisition or or sales or taking care of your employees or what all that really means is however over the course of period i've realized that i've had like a lot of people who would ask me even it has been in my company and like sometimes in the people i've spoken to where they would have like a like an opinion about my way of of being in the professional world and be like it's absolutely crazy that you are so good at business development or or uh, managing uh, the customer ex- expectations or or things like that and they would be like it's crazy because this is something that shows that you have a lot of experience and i find it absolutely wild because i'm like i actually don't have any experience to me all of this comes from a place of like empathy of what if someone is buying something or if someone is investing their time or effort what would they want or how would they feel as a consumer or a, or a customer or a community member if I were there in that space? And it's so, it's, I find it like absolutely crazy that there were so many moments I would be like, where people would be like, uh, oh, like you, you really know your stuff or you're really smart with this. And I would have like a, a moment of imposter syndrome at its peak because I'll be like, what are you talking about? Uh, like, like I know I optically it might be different, but I know in my head that a lot of, things that my, you you might think I know a lot about, I actually don't. There would be times, and I'm not kidding you, where um, one of my other co-founders from, from Artstar, he's run like a couple of businesses, and there were times where he would just drop these abbreviations of like things that I would have to Google what they are because I was like too embarrassed to even ask. I would never tell him that, but he would also be the same person who would be like, that's so crazy that you, you came up with this idea or you're thinking it from that point of view because I didn't even think of it. And I would be like, this is fascinating. I don't know how is this happening, but yeah, I think empathy plays like a way bigger role in almost all facets of, of your life. And it's something that I, I hugely believe in cultivating it with your family, with your friends, with your kids, because I think it, it has, it has immense, immense value. And that's what means to be human, I guess. What do you think is the major blockage in people that's preventing them from accessing that part of their being? I would say there's an element of of not being okay with being vulnerable. I would say it it comes to that because I feel like it's just considered like a uh, uh, an element of weakness. It's associated with that that if you let your gods down, people are not going to respect it. Women are not going to find you attractive or things like that. And I feel like there's just like this notion that it that sensitivity and emotion and empathy are regarded as not traits that you would that like in especially in your early years that people would tell you are considered to be the traits that you would expect from a top level ceo or like a successful person and stuff because one of the things that you you hear from uh you would expect if you were going to to speak to uh, uh steve jobs or or elon musk or jeff bezos is 
punctuality and like hard work and showing up and and like you know like your your textbook things of just like hard work and capitalism and things like that i would say that that i feel like people regard empathy as a place of weakness where i think it's it's completely untrue i agree with you i agree with you and on top of that we're we're very highly driven by data and analysis in our like frontal lobe our frontal cortex and at when you receive information, you're tempted to instantly observe it from that place, from an analytical perspective. And what happens when you jump to analysis too quickly is that you're, this thing, this idea, this concept that you're looking at stays at the conscious level and doesn't access the subconscious level. And mm-hmm. for me, the, the subconscious is where intuition lives, is where empathy lives, is where all of that lives. And so if you learn to kind of balance yourself to not always be in a, in a place of go, 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 and in a proactive, like, oh, I need to figure this out. And if you, like, you know, sit back and relax for a second and let mm. the entirety of your being be exposed to this, then that's where the deeper, more nuanced, more subtle parts of your of your being can can shine. I think beautifully, but I completely agree. It's, it's I guess it's just being taking a moment and just being present before trying to analyze and psychoanalyze and figure out how I can solve this or make this better or or fix this or do the opposite. It's just taking a moment and absorbing it. I guess I beautifully, but. Yeah. And it, and it touches back on, on what we we're saying on like, how do you act online? If you see Rahim say something that you don't agree with, the response you're going to give him, if you instantly like jump to your keyboard, like, ah, what you're saying is not true. And if you just like contemplate it for five minutes, five seconds, 15, 30, two completely different perspectives. Anyways, we went a lot farther than I imagined we would go. One of the things that uh, we talked about that kind of struck me is I almost had started to see CC0 as something that didn't have anything to do with business. That was something that was more about art. And for me, until we talked, Moonbirds had made a mistake in making their project uh, CC0. But you seem to disagree because when you talked about IP, you saw it as a very sound, it seemed, uh, way to go about it and to approach it. And I'm very intrigued to learn more. So I think, um, I and this just goes back to like a statement I made earlier. I think it's, it's again, not CC0 or not CC0. Those aren't two, the only two conversations we should be having. And this is why I would say I there's an element of it, I agree with it. And there's an element of I don't agree with it, especially when we are talking, let's say, with Moonwords as an example. And the reason I say that is I was just in a space earlier. They were talking about uh, Yuga Labs acquiring CryptoPunks. And they were like, some. The, there was a particular gentleman and he was like, I I've read the fine print and it says that Yuga Labs owns the the creative copyrights to CryptoPunks and they've given licensing rights to hit holders. And I saw a bunch of people putting thumbs down on on the Twitter space. And I, I immediately suppressed, I want to speak in this space and talk about this. And I was like, I'm, I'm kind of confused. Why are people thumbs downing uh, with this, this bit? Because the only solution around this is actually CC0. Do you want CryptoPunks to be CC0? They're like, no, but I was like, 
This is where people are misunderstanding what like giving licensing rights means and what CC0 is, is that if CryptoPunks or, or Doodles or Artifact or whatever project wanted to give complete creative rights to individual holders, every time things get sold, you would need to do an IRL paperwork to kind of prove the whole data like a, a blockchain transaction history is not enough especially when these a lot of these wallets don't even have kyc so if i sold my clonex to you and now the rights are going from myself to you we need a whole ecosystem to to sign off of these rights to being with you which is just like a very big hassle it needs to have like a regulatory body involved like it's a whole like a complicated process and the only way to mitigate that is a company being like you know what you anyone who owns it has the we are giving them the rights to it and and that's about it and the other way would be cc0 is that it's completely public domain anyone can do any anything with it so i feel like it's again like po- like it's it's positive and 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 negative the i i love cc0 as a concept i love it with the meme cards by 6529 all of them are cc0 i love it as in in theory i think with moonbirds the issue is there are certain optics that people had or expected by them creating their artwork in a certain particular way because everyone thought like a pfp project is around ip because you're creating this character it has traits and it has eyes and mouth and whatever so i feel like that's where where the gap really came about i personally never never got into moonbirds i i thought the whole cc0 model is great but it is great in theory but i think it was a, a terrible move for them to make because they were like their team came in in spaces after it and they were like we were surprised by the community's reaction towards cc0 which i was like what are you talking about? Like, I was like, I'm not even as as close to to being as smart as some of the people in the team were who've built businesses and companies in the traditional world way before I started doing anything in this space. And so I, I put them on a pedestal, like I, I value and respect them. And how are you people telling me that you thought this was a very weird reaction that you didn't expect when half of the like 80 percent of the twitter worse is are 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 always talking about ip rights ip rights ip rights every twitter space every post so i was like that was kind of like an out of touch mechanism but yeah like it's it's a different thesis it's a different story the whole idea of cc0 is freedom it's it's public domain it's like everyone should have have uh, access to to being able to play it, there are certain and and don't quote me on this. Could I be? I I think I'm I'm right, but I could be wrong. But like some of the more classical musics, the reason by by Mozart or Beethoven, the reason you hear them in like toys and things like that, that oh, that like the reason you would hear it in toys and stuff is because I, if I'm not mistaken, at some point they became public domain. So when things become public domain, they they serve a different purpose than they become part of like culture, like. Tell me what other classical pieces of music from early century would have been known by younger kids anymore. Like people would not be able to name musicians from the 60s, 70s. I don't think I can. Um, maybe other than like a, a musician or two, I don't think I will be. So I think like CC0 serves a way bigger purpose that is against the idea of capitalism and, and making money and this and that. And if that is your goal, which is completely fine. Like, you know, like I'm not going to lie. A lot of us people in the NFT space, we are, we are holding these, these projects and NFTs as assets. We see them as uh, money driving vehicles in some way or the other. But if you're looking at it from a capitalist point of view, I can see why CC0 would be a problem, but you have to understand what it like really, really represents, you know? It's interesting because CC0 could 
both be a way that a brand become eternal, but it's also hard to make it be so because it it ah uh, it, it it wouldn't make money it wouldn't make financial sense for the people that started except in this like the motherfucker and sartoshi thing of i create this i'm making money buying it you guys are vibing mm -hmm. now it's you're saying you can do whatever you want with it and which like motherfuckers could could very well be one of those uh nft brands that we still talk about in 20 25 years because there's something like very pure even though it's kind of a weird word to use about mm -hmm. them but still And when you were talking, it made me realize that with the rise and the current success of Pudgy Penguins, there's there's been a change in how we view the success when it comes to IP and Web3. Because initially, it was the Yuga-led movement of your ape, your IP, and so you can do whatever you want with it. Mm. And that was the successful approach. And now we've gone back to hey, your IP is actually, we're going to use the IP and you're going to benefit uh, from it that way. I wonder what's going to stick. Maybe probably both. I think, yeah, I think I think that's a good, it's literally like the last statement that you said, right? It's, I think that it's important to have that that thinking that we don't know what's going to stick. You, it's, it's easy for you to be like, okay, oh, because you guys model works, this is going to be perfect or doodles or this and that and stuff. But it, in, if you were being 100% honest, It's just like too, too early. Yes, maybe some things have a bigger probability, but I still think we should we should experiment. And I think as much as I'm not a big fan of Moonbirds, I never was, but I'm glad they experimented. And I think it sucks because it comes at the expense of other people losing this and that. But like on a, on a, on a zoomed out perspective, I think um, people should should experiment. And like a, a great example of, of CC0 as a concept. Again, this is not like a subject I'm very familiar with, but to my knowledge... I don't think there is, I don't think Santa Claus as a concept originates from pure religion. I think it's a, it's a mixture of like mythic culture and like, like just like a story around it. I don't think it's actually from Christianity as a, as a whole, but it's a CC zero concept if you think about it, which is why like, you know, like every person, every kid on planet earth can decide to want to be visited by Santa Claus and get presents. And it's such a big part of Christmas. And it's, it's a culture that's been like such a huge aspect that has been affected when they say Coca-Cola is the one that changed its colors to red and white and used to be multicolored before. And then you have like such a different cultural impact today that you actually uh, have people like dressing up at Santa's at parties and giving gifts that you think that, oh, it's a character and it's a CZ0 character. And that's why no one's coming out and being like, hey guys, you can't use this character anymore and stuff. So I feel like, yeah, it's, it's an interesting conversation to have. I think time has to play a very significant role for, for CZ0 to mean and matter at any point. But uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating to, to see how how that works, you know? It is. All right, we've come to that point where I'm going to ask you rapid fire questions and you can go just answer fast or not so fast, however you want to go All about right. it. If you could only buy one NFT to hold for the rest of your life, what would it be? A CryptoPunk. If you could only hold one crypto for the rest of your life, what would it be? Ethereum. Man, I need to find... <laughs> Everyone answers the... It's CryptoPunks or Fidenza. And, mm. and, uh, and yeah, ETH, which are all very sound. I would do the same. What's been your best trade with NFTs? How much did you clear in one trade? I would say in NFTs would be 
Haji penguins in terms of volume because I minted like 10 penguins and then I bought like five, six the night after when they dropped to 0 0.01. Uh, I think that was my, that is a very significant profit that I made in a very short amount of time because of course my, I bought my board ape at half an each. So I know it went like, I made like a lot of it, but I only had it one and I made it in chunks. But Pudgy Penguins was like my quickest and smallest, like the smallest investment with the most amount of, of volume profit wise. Nice. What are your top three favorite people that you vibe with the most in this space at the moment? Ooh, this is a tricky one and stuff. Uh, some I think like some of my favorite people in 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 this space would be Zeneca is a very very good friend of mine. Every once in a while we catch up in IRL, so he's a very interesting person that I vibe with. Wow, this is quite quite uh, tricky. I I, I love. Uh, I I don't know this person on a very personal level, but I absolutely love this person's handle called susan nfts and essentially uh this person talks a lot about art a lot of like this is the only person i think who makes threads and content about art we've never connected on on a personal level so i definitely think uh they would make the list i believe and finally i would pick i have a friend in dubai who i why with a, a, a lot uh his name is Luca, he's not as active on on the in the Twitter space, but I feel like he's part of that big odd star WhatsApp chat. Like, there's not a day where he and I are not exchanging things, or he's not saying something in it, or we're not talking on a personal level. So I would say he's like one of my favorite people somewhere out there. But yeah, like I would say some of them. Wow, this was quite difficult. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you I'm glad you came out on top. What's something about you people online don't know? I have a very goofy side to me and. When I say that is I do, one of the things I do in my free time is I am an improv theater actor. So I'm doing like the most silliest uh, things. I, I have like shows every Wednesday. I had one last night as well. And improv theater is one minute you're a 90 year old man. And like, sometimes you are a, a, a talking ostrich or whatever, or like, you know, you're like, oh, like a, a, a hairstylist or whatever. And I, there's like a very goofy side to it because obviously improv is, improv is at in some ways, it's it's exactly who I am as a person of, because improv relies on the idea of being present, being in the moment, and just being for what this moment is, letting go of who you are, what your beliefs are, what do you think right or wrong is, and just being present. So I think that there's a whole goofy and silly side of me that I have that I feel like a lot of people don't know. I have gotten a comment or two where certain people until they met me they thought that i was a very serious person because of my content or the way i speak and stuff so they were quite shocked that like you know i was like such a, a different person so i would say that i don't think a lot of people know how uh, goofy i am because i do like at, at the improv theater we do cartoon voices so i do voices i do like different accents and stuff which is as goofy as it gets oh that's so cool when i'm in dubai i'm coming with you to uh to improv class dude uh the the type of the type of improv that happens over here at the theater where I where I perform is is rare around the world, not just here, because it's a very big. It's it's based on uh, this person's format called Keats Johnston, and he basically mixes a lot of elements of actual theater with a lot of like competition ideologies that he actually got inspired from wrestling uh, in 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 the early 70s or 80s and stuff so like the type of format we do it has a lot of costumes it has a lot of props which is very unconventional for uh, improv theaters because usually improv theaters don't have costumes and 
and gear to to because we have like full sets and like couches and like beds and like like a whole prop set, which is something you don't see in improv theater and stuff. So it's actually a pretty fun place to be at. What's something about you people think they know? That's not true. I think sometimes I come off as a lot more knowledgeable than I really am. And I'm, this is not just me like being like, ah, you're just trying to be humble and stuff and everything. And I'm not like, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I do think I have a lot of information than a lot of people just because of the time and effort I put into this space. But I know because people look at me sometimes at face value because of the conversation. So they're obviously judging me from just like a very small brief uh, uh, period in time. So I think a lot of times people think uh, that I have a lot more information than they, they think. So I would, I would say that I think, yeah, I think maybe like if I have like a way with words or things like that, that I can come off a bit more, more knowledgeable than I might be. <laughs> well, I can't believe it's taken us an hour and a half and we're only just <laughs> go, getting to the actual Web3 stuff. <laughs> so <laughs> the, 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 it's, it's, if, if you, if you need to, like, if you have a heart stop later or if you, if you're yeah, getting no, I have tired, time, you I have let time. me know. Yeah. Yeah, I can't believe it's been an hour and a half. I've heard about Art Dow for a long time, like long before I long before I met you. I think Cool Kong is his name, right? Cool, a uh, Cool Kong. You have a yeah, yes. Cool Kong. Yeah, I, I, th- I think he and I had a few interactions, and that's how I, that's how I, I, I came to know about it. How did it start? Like, what was the origin story for it? How did you? find yourself in that in that position for it to happen oh the the origin story is actually very nice uh it's a very unique story actually uh so in august of 2021 i was buying an an artwork from this girl named laura from latvia and i was basically bidding on a piece of hers on foundation i believe at at that point she was called nft cargill i think now her handle is cartist like car and artist um, and I got into essentially a bidding war with this gentleman. You know her? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was following her way back. Yeah. So so I essentially got into a bidding war with like a particular gentleman on it. And then I ended up after like four or five bids, I ended up winning the piece. And this person texted me and were like, congratulations on winning the piece. He was like, oh, you're in Dubai. We should We should meet up. And I was super stoked to hear that because in August of 2021, I didn't know anyone in real life in Dubai who was into NFTs. Everyone was still from the West. So I was like, yeah, let's do it. Oh my God, I'm super excited. So the very next day we ended up meeting at a coffee shop and it was uh, this this gentleman named Anas who was at that point, he was working as a crypto lawyer at uh, checkout.com. And he was into, he had like a podcast in the crypto space. He was in crypto for a couple of years, but he was just like dipping his toes into NFTs. And at that point, I had gotten a bunch of NFTs from, I remember, Cool Cats. And I don't know if Budget Penguins were launched, but I remember having Cool Cats, Wicked Craniums, Bored Apes, and things like that. And then we just like got to talking. He uh, ended up getting some NFTs. And then a couple of days later, we started coming across like people who were holding like 20 punks or like 10 board apes or things like that. We met like a couple of people who were doing like small meetups in the NFT space at like uh, an artist in Dubai, Crystal Bishara, who we ended up doing the art style collection with that we were like, you know, like let's do meetups. And we did the first month and there were like 10 people. And then the next month it was 30 and then it was 100 and then it was like 120. Like it, it was like exponentially growing. 
And and yeah, we just kind of like realized that some of the biggest NFT collectors from the art space to even the the PFP space at that point were actually living out of out of Dubai. So we just kind of like started bringing people together. Man, that's so cool. It's always crazy to me how like just a small encounter, a small event can lead to something so huge. And and, and that's why you also should not just be thinking with your brain because like this makes no sense. It makes mm, no rational I, sense. I, I completely it, agree. A, a continuity of, of just encounters and discoveries and something that no rational brained person could ever imagine yeah i i I will i will not go into detail in this because i want us to focus on the web 3n but ages ago and i never i never finished it but like in high school in my early years of college i actually started writing a book on on this exact bit about how you have these small tipping points in life that have like such big impacts and like like things seem like arbitrary and everyone's trying to 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 decide what their life or the future is going to be but it's so funny that the most random things can change the biggest things in your life and stuff so i resonate with that idea anyways coming back to the web3 stuff um i think that one thing that people struggle with especially because they come from a place of they heard someone telling them that web3 is where they can get like huge opportunities where they can make a lot of money and then they get into the space nothing happens and some people get frustrated or they kind of get this sense of entitlement of hey this is decentralized i should have my place and my spot but that's not how it works that's not how humans work that's not how business works what can you say to someone who's just getting in to help them prime themselves for such opportunities to happen to them as cliche as it's going to as it's going to sound sit observe and show up there's a lot more merit to it than people realize because a this goes back to an earlier bit that i was talking about that again it's not centralization and decentralization they are not the only two conversations we should be having there are certain issues with decentralization that we don't know how we are going to combat there are certain positives about central also how are these pieces coming together how are there certain projects that are actually majority of the projects are actually a blend of of both how does that whole thing work and especially so i think in general there's a lot more nuance to almost everything in life just don't look at things from a face value but that sounds like a bit more generic advice but the reason i think it's more it's more apt in this space is the other element is that everything is so new in this space that the rules are changing like every two, three weeks. So when you already have a scenario where there are no definitions, there are there are no no laws where you can be like, okay, this is a strategy that works, this doesn't work, uh, where you cannot use like textbook data that we use in like a lot of other facets of life to be like, okay, this is a good investment or this is a project that I'm going to hold. When you don't have those rules set yet, because time needs to play a role for those rules to to formulate, to have a thesis proven whether they work or not, you have to realize that you have to be super open-minded and just realize that the space is is very new. Because a fundamental concept for people to always remember is that whenever there's something new comes, there are two ways to look at it, right? Your, your one is you are early in it and you have you have pros of being early in it, grow a business, build a company, make a lot of money. 
However, that comes with challenges of not knowing what the rules are, how this is going to work, what the regulation is going to work, what are the problems that are going to happen with this because there's no history and data. And then you have the other scenario where you wait, you sit back and observe, and then you build when there is enough data. Now what happens is you have not been early. So you probably missed out on that short amount of time maximum growth sort of a concept. However, the pros are that you've learned from people's mistakes. You've understood what the rules and regulations that are coming into spaces in the space are. How can you build around it? How you can mitigate a lot more uh, risk averse things that other people didn't who came in early. And that happens with anything, dot-com bubble, social media, web three. So I feel like I feel like yeah, just like showing up and observing is has a lot more value in this space than any other areas of technology. Absolutely. And I guess I guess the last thing you do is provide value. Once you've once you've observed and once you've noticed something, figure out how you can provide value and and that's how that's how opportunities are cuz there's still this thing of people having entitlement and having expectations of hey, I bought this NFT and so you should deliver for me. Whereas it should be, hey, I bought this NFT. I have an opportunity to deliver for someone and to and to find my my place and to and to contribute. Beautiful, agreed. Why do you think we need decentralization? Oh, I love this conversation. This can be a a, a podcast on its own. Decentralization to me is is fixing a fundamental problem of people in power pulling the threads on every single thing. And the reason decentralization matters to some people more than the other is that if you are someone who's benefited a lot from centralization, and this is usually your top 1% of the top 1%, uh, uh, people who kind of are the ones who are running countries or or companies or making the wealth, they will always obviously be against decentralization because they benefit from centralization. To me, there is so much contextualization to the human experience, to who you are, what your what your beliefs are, and and how how you need support and how you need to be helped to to become better version of your of yourselves. That I think central decentralization is all about bringing power to the the masses and trying to find a better way to to provide value to single individual lives rather than trying to replicate a copy paste formula across the board uh, for efficiency reasons or for for capitalistic reasons and hoping this works or this doesn't work and yeah and i think like especially countries when when we're talking on a on a on a financial level when we're talking about in in countries that have gone through through catastrophes where they they ended up getting burned by centralization uh you take venezuela you take uh, lebanon you take turkey that it's absolutely crazy that if i am a single parent let's say who's working a 15 hours of 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 a job why am i struggling to make ends meet and provide for my family because of geopolitical decisions that has been made by my country and i think that's a bizarre concept that why is it how much food i have on my plate is going to be dictated by what how the 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 governors of my country are working with other governors of another country that like that logic just like doesn't sit with me and if you see 
if you see the idea of decentralization and break it down in a more somewhere in between centralization and decentralization is something that we've been fighting for for a very long time in a lot of places where we are saying that we want more power given to the people and a clear a great example i use is when the black life movement was happening in america one of the one of the protests uh, one of the fundamental pillars of the protest was that defund the 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 police and what does that mean they were saying if you break it down what they were saying is that the police have too much power that a centralized authority has way more too much power over everyone else and we need to kind of redistribute it or fix this ecosystem so it's something that we we've been fighting for in in wars and like protests and a lot of cultural things you're seeing this happening in in corporations where people are like no we actually want to have a stake in the company you see startups giving a stake to you in the company what are they trying to do that instead of what they want is instead of you just working there as an employee of you getting paid that you should start thinking of this company as a bigger picture and be like because i hold stake in this company how can i how how can i provide value to the space as as not just with my job but to the whole business and i think it's a concept that we've been talking in different words and and different linguistics across the board um to to fix the world and i think that's why we need decentralization i think we need to provide a lot more equality and power and diversity and different perspectives and it goes back to a beautiful statement that you made that in order to get closer to the objective reality we need a lot of subjective opinions and these subjective opinions comes from understanding why diversity is important why equality is important why we need to have uh, people fighting for the people rather than a bunch of people on top assuming that they are providing to the people is what the people want and uh, what you're describing is such a huge paradigm shift it we as a civilization and as the result of previous civilizations have built habits that have been passed on through time and through generations the future you're describing requires us to change those habits so how do you think 2 years 5 years 10 years 50 uh in order to achieve that level of decentralization and of ownership by individuals of the ecosystem and chains of value creation that they're a part of this is actually a in my opinion i think this is actually a way more complicated of of a question that a lot of people realize because we we talk about centralization decentralization from a financial point of view or or decision making but it goes way way beyond that right from the moment you are a kid and i think this is where it gets tricky of we don't know whether in in some capacities as much as i'm an advocate of it we also don't know at least in the interim period what will be the cons of it and how are we going to deal with that are humans wired or is there an evolutionary aspect to it that certain people actually in in the current time period are actually not suited for this because even right from from when you are a kid when you are a kid when you fight with the neighbor's kid what do you do you go to your parents you go to a centralized authority to help you solve a problem uh, you go to school when when you are feeling an exam or not doing good or struggling with it what do you do you go to a, a a teacher when you are flying to your vacation holiday to bali with your family and suddenly all your flights are canceled what do you do you call the airlines the centralized authority to help you figure out a solution so 
I know we we put centralization in in this evil bucket and make it sound it's all like evil and it has like no value to it. Well, that's completely wrong. Centralization has made our lives a lot more easier than people talk about it in the space. And I feel like because we are so wired to 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 accept centralization from a young age. I, to be honest, I'm not really sure how do we have this shift that it can be that like for the first 20 years of your life, you are an advocate and you are a practitioner of centralization that all of a sudden you're going to flip 360 and be like, oh, decentralization is where I want to to move in. So it's something, it's a, it's a question that I always ask myself as well, that what do I think would be the the things that need to play out? What are the steps we need to take but it's one of those things that i'm 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 going to say that i don't want to be that person who thinks they have the solution uh just because i don't think i don't think a lot of people would either and i don't want to give out like a false thesis or just like answer this just for the heck of it but i honestly think that because this is such a new paradigm and the way of of thinking that I just don't think a lot of us can even comprehend. In in science, we talk about there are things we don't know, and there are things we don't know we don't know. And this is one of those one of those things. But if I think one of the the, the ways I see us moving forward on a on a more broader scale, on a mass adoption scale, would be move to a web two point five model first, and then move to a web three model. Yeah, that's how I would answer this. I guess I know this doesn't give you what you wanted, but no, it's it's such a it's such a refreshing. I I I'd hate ending up with like bullshit answers on this podcast, and and mm-hmm. and this was a tough question, and it it is a question that I genuinely believe not a lot of people on this planet have uh, a very good answer for, or mm-hmm. very good. We all have like we were saying before, we all have our subjective perspective and we all have our own ways in which we are going to push towards this unique goal of decentralization. Mm. And and it is only by adding more people to the equation that believe that we need it mm. and that are willing to get in the arena to build it, that we will eventually achieve this. And it will require all of these to solve that complex equation to actually... No, 100%. Thank you for that perfect, uh, imperfect answer. We've been talking about civilizations, and I don't know if you'll remember exactly what you meant. I didn't, but you were saying that Pudgy penguins fits the definition of uh, civilization, and and I, and I was really intrigued to for you to remind me what you meant if you remember it. Whoa, I I have zero idea of uh, what I would have uh, uh, said, but I'm 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 assuming the 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 bit I spoke about is. I remember hearing uh, Luca, who's the owner of Pudgy Penguin, say something very interesting, which I was like, huh, there's actually some truth to it. But he was like, there has always been a generation that has been obsessed with the idea of penguins uh, in some form or the other as a, as, a, as a character. And I was like, whoa, I never thought about that. And then he, he named all the way from Club Penguin. Uh, then he talked about like Frozen and like other like a bunch of other movies that I, that are not coming to my mind yet. But he was essentially talking about three different generations, how they were all exposed to like this fun, happy, wholesome, pudgy character, and that's why he believes that other than the business model I'm trying to build or or the people that I'm working with or the direction we are going, that contrary to what a lot of the space talks about, that 
it's not much about the art. And I do think to a certain degree, it is true for a lot of these PFP projects that I think Pudgy Penguins is one project that there is, there is a lot more honesty with their IP that people would be like, art is objective at the, uh, subjective at the end of the day. But I think like it would be things like Pudgy Penguins and stuff. Like it's, it's hard for someone to, to argue that these don't look cute. Uh, maybe you can, you can, you can, yeah, you can have this back and forth with like, uh, with like board apes or whatever, they look ugly, they are this or whatever and stuff. But I think with Pudgy Penguins, you'll have a vast majority of people. They'd be like, oh, these, these look like good characters. Like if these were people, they would be good people. <laughs> <laughs> I like this. Yeah, it, it, it does have a lot of catalysts working for it. I'm, I'm so priced out right now. And I'm and I'm really sad about it. I, I hoped for a minute a few months ago that I could get in and, and now it's going to be too late for now I th- yeah i think even even the the of course no financial advice to anyone who's listening but i think uh even from an upside point of view i think an investment point of view i think lil pudgies is a great investment into the ecosystem uh at least with the start just because especially if you're looking at it from a financial point of view also for a little pudgy to go 2x it's going to be a lot faster than the pudgy penguin going to 2x and stuff and it's for the same reason i hold a lot more little pudgies than i hold i actually just have one pudgy but i have a bunch of other little pudgies and stuff because a it helps me with liquidity b i just think there's a lot more upside with secondary collections with projects than their primary ones if you if the the tokenomics for a lack of a better word are are right yeah, you're probably right. I think it's ego for me wanting mm-hmm. to be. I want to prime. I agree. I agree. I mean, I, 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 I think if I didn't have a pudgy penguin, I would probably be like, I would rather have one of the pudgy penguin than just. So I, I completely get that, and it, it sucks. But we have this tribalism in the space. People will not talk about it, but it's there. And having a board ape is different to having a mutant ape. Yes, we are part of the same club. You get the same accesses, but it's just different. It is, and especially because we're early. And so you want to show that you're early. You don't want to be second. Mm-hmm. And so you want to have the the main guy. Do you, have you have you followed the flooring capital protocol? I have. That's really interesting when it comes to to liquidity. It's very interesting. I've been I've been thinking about it a lot, and it just comes down to experimentation and just seeing how the space works. Because from a liquidity standpoint, there's a lot of value in it i think fractionalization has been a thing that a lot of platforms have tried before it just didn't work or the timing wasn't right maybe this is the time where liquidity is the biggest question that everyone's talking about that it may be a good time for fractionalization to like really pick up especially if the person behind it is somehow able to get these tokens listed on exchanges of your mu tokens in uh, the mu board ape tokens or mu pudgy penguins or mu azuki tokens at a lot of these exchanges and somehow if we end up getting the DeFi community involved in it, because the DeFi community is big. I trade a, I trade a lot of meme coins and like the amount of volume and money that floats around over there is like ridiculous compared to what happens in the, the NFT space. So I think from a liquidity standpoint of view, very interesting proposition, but I, I just have my concerns with it from a zoomed out perspective of what does IP mean then? And what is the value of IP and what happens when, if we end up locking 300, or not, let's say, let's take a ridiculous number. What happens if there are 2000 board apes in that protocol? So now there are no 2000 board apes that are completely gone from the collection unless someone redeems it. Is this good for the IP? Is it, then no one owns those, right? Then no one's building a, 
of the board in Hungary or board vodka or whatever and stuff and everything. And then it just questions then where does the whole, the, the community model lies. And so it's something I guess we're going to find out and, and figure it out. But yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. It's like one of the, one of the other things that I've always not liked that it's possible, but it's kind of, it's kind of contradictory for me to say because I, I believe in decentralization is I, I hate the fact that people have the ability to burn NFTs. Like I hate that someone is able to burn a crypto punk or a burn a board ape and things like that. Like it just seems like there's a, there's, there's so much, there's something bigger than this and you're removing that from the collection. And this is what I, this is what my concern with this flooring protocol is. I actually DM'd uh, the guy behind it hoping to hear his point of view regarding it literally an hour before I got onto this podcast. And I was like, if there are, because how the protocol works is the moment you put like a, a particular NFT in it, you get a million tokens off of it. What happens if I burn 10 tokens from that million? That means there will be at least one board ape that will forever stay in that protocol. Because the protocol works if there are essentially 15 board apes and there are 15 million coins for it and stuff. So obviously... Uh, not everyone's going to like liquidate at the same time. So that it's it's the same argument of how liquidity works across the protocol and stuff uh, across any protocol. But I was like, that means if there's anyone who ever burns even one token, that there will be always be one board ape that will forever be in that protocol. Even if the, 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 the program such shuts down or the protocol shuts down, it's not operational. Can we get it out? Like what is, how does it work? So I've asked him that question, but he hasn't responded uh, so I'm I'm curious to hear what happens on that end. Have you looked at the contract? Are you are you sure they're not able to? Th- there's not like a backdoor so that they can mint uh, a few extra tokens. I this is where this is where I'm not as technical to to be able to audit contracts. There are so the thing is they've tried to do this in a right way where they're trying to get enough uh, credibility because they've. They have a couple of companies and agencies that have kind of audited the contract. So you can see who's audited it, how much they've paid for it. So they've kind of been transparent, which is something you don't see in this space a lot. The other thing which which makes it seem like this is a lot more legit is the person behind it is the one who's put all the liquidity in it initially. So he has he's put like hundred yeah, so he's put like hundred eleven board apes in it, or there are hundred eleven board apes in it. I I'm assuming 99% of them are his at the moment. There are like a thousand uh, Azuki elementals. There are 200 Pudgy penguins. So the man has a lot of stake in it and stuff. So I would like to assume there's no back door. If he responds to you, can you can you try to tell him to come on the podcast? Oh, I would love to. <laughs> That'd be crazy. Yeah, I, when you were talking about hating the, the idea of burning an NFT, it made me think, holy shit, that would be such a great marketing move. To like burn a board ape <laughs> because a lot of people would hate it it's funny you say that because it has happened a couple of times in this space if i'm not mistaken machi has burned there are some people have burned uh, uh mutants for sure i think there's a particular mm-hmm. board ape that has been burned as well yes 100 percent. there's a board ape there's a board ape or two that has been burned there was this project it had like a very gimmicky thing to it i think it was called uh, you're going to die or something like that it had like a very yeah, stupid we are, we're going to die One we are going to die i think they burned a, a mutant or a board ape as a marketing start and everything so there are people who've done it it's i just hate it i just find it like it's literally like the opposite of what this community means and yeah that's one one that's one concept and this just goes back to the again the thing i was saying right like there are things we don't know there are things we don't know we don't know and every time I hear something like that, like it just like sucks for these things to to not exist on the blockchain, right? Like someone is like, you know what? 
this Borib doesn't exist anymore. And you're like, no, but this is a character. It's important. Like, you know, like how could we do this? So I love yeah. that you care about this on, on such a deep level. It's something, it's something we need. When we were talking about collecting and, and like to a certain extent trading, the, um, you mentioned the misconception that exists around what it means to be early because there are levels to being early. There's being early on a, on the scope of a month and then there's being early on the scope of a, of a century. Can you can you elaborate on that and, and maybe on how it affects the way you navigate those markets? Just in case I say anything over here that's going to sound like financial advice. I'm not giving financial advice. This is just my personal uh, uh, thesis. But like lately, I've been talking to a lot of people with this idea that I think there is a level of degenerate behavior that you need from people in anything for anything to ever become uh, accepted or or for it to grab attention and stuff. Because almost anything that's revolutionary when it comes out sounds absolutely bonkers and doesn't make sense but you need a couple of dreamers for a lack of better word or gamblers or whatever you want to call them to believe in that uh and and bring the attention for us to be like okay maybe there's something there and then uh you have a bunch of people getting in it for the degenerate reasons and then there are corporations and companies they're like hmm, maybe there is something that we can build something onto it because that's how the the internet worked it sounded like a weird thing that we're gonna live in this digital world and this information is going to be free wait i thought like you had to buy books or get like a library uh, uh, a membership and now you're saying you want to provide information for free that makes no sense and then i always take this concept of, of bitcoin like imagine going in like 2010 or something and telling people that hey i want you to buy this coin oh perfect amazing who is this by oh i'm not sure is this person or a group of people or entity named satoshi and we don't know who he is or who she is or where they are from or what's their story so it sounds like such a wait you're telling me to buy something that you don't that's a fake internet money fake digital money and we don't even know what the source is you're saying there are 21 million but none of us know enough about contracts or things for us to believe it so but people believed in it and there are certain people gambled in it and it became a thing and that's what happened with CryptoPunks in 2017 that like you know like people bought it just for the heck of it and they claimed it for free <laughs> CryptoPunks were free at one point in in time and it was it was they were erc20 tokens actually before that so i just feel like in in some level people have to realize that there are sometimes these opportunities that come, whether it's in the stock market with things like Uber or like, you know, like uh, uh, Mark Cuban talks about how he completely missed the boat on Uber. And Kevin Hart talks about it, how he thought it was like, literally he he jokes about it. And he was like, no, I'm not investing in this murder will because he was like, people are just going to like kidnap and like kill people and do like some shady stuff um, in it. That I was just like that at some level, high high reward comes with high risk and you kind of have to gauge you have to kind of gauge where you are currently in life what your financial standing is how much are you willing to risk uh, what are your liabilities and kind of look into that because if you're looking to 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 make like significant amount of wealth whether it's through stock market whether it's through crypto whether it's through anything uh, uh, uh significant that you have to somehow almost see it as like a gambling degenerative thing and where you think that this is going to absolutely going to zero uh, that you should enter it with the idea of that so i think on like when you're looking for that ridiculous 20 50 100 x's whether it's from nvidia or apple stock or bitcoin or 
CryptoPunks that you have to realize that in order to get those 50, 100 Xs, you need to be like super, super early. Uh, but that comes with maximum amount of risk. But if you're looking for a less risk averse uh, investment thesis, um, where you're looking, okay, you know what? I'm happy with a 2X or a 3X, which is what a lot of the traditional stock market is for certain people who are daily traders. They exit positions in like not even 2Xs and like 10% and 15% and 20% and stuff. So I think it just comes to that. Then when you're looking at like a, on a big time frame on a big uh, uh, models where enough, uh, like a decade has passed, but you want that time and history of that particular asset or investment that you have to get into it with the idea of okay you're looking at 10 20 30 100 200 percent profit but like don't expect crazy returns and stuff don't put your life savings in it and expect it to go like 10x because it's not gonna happen man there's still so much education to be done because you have people that are investing super early in something that could be an interesting idea but they don't do any due diligence they don't like they have no idea about the track record of the people that are behind it. They don't do any bankroll management because they find something that triggers them emotionally. And so they put literally the house on it. And and they're still, I think that's one of the major obstacles that's between us and effective decentralization because banks, whether you like it or not, still helped you manage your own risk. They helped you, hey, are you sure that this is a good investment for you or if it doesn't make it onto onto that UI? But now because the access is virtually free and open, then you have people that are like doing crazy, crazy stuff all based on emotions and not with the understanding of what could actually happen and is most likely to happen. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think this this again is... We don't know the impacts of complete decentralization, right? We don't know how much of of gamblers will people become or not become. We just we just don't know, or we don't know if there needs to be an 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 evolutionary thing that needs to happen. That maybe this generation or or even the next couple of generations are just not wired for centralization. That if it became a thing, we're going to eat each other alive, and maybe that the 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 civilization will go down and then it'll come back up. We don't know. And, and that's the, the tricky part of this whole whole concept and idea is. It's nuts. It's nuts. This will be my last question. It's been intense already. You were talking about the fact that buying NFTs equals collecting culture. And, and that is the result of an evolution in culture. It, it started in geographic and went through stages and now has reached the digital realm. You were saying that collecting culture trumps any types of other types of investing and, and trading. And, and what exactly does this all mean? And how do you, how did you get there? And what is the definition of culture in that in that sense? So I'm, I'm, I'm just going to reiterate what you said, that this is for me, that I think collecting culture is my favorite form of investment, uh, just because it, it has like a bigger emotional connection to it. That's why I regard it as like a bigger a more valuable investment over other assets. Uh, and the reason I say that is it goes down straight up, like down to how humans operate. We all have a sense, we all need a sense of belonging. We all want to be a part of, of something. That's how uh, we work on a biological level 
from like uh, um, we like to be in a herd of sheep. We like to be a flock of birds because we feel safe. We feel secure. That's how we are wired. Even from a, a psychological point of view, um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs talks about that we have like an innate desire to to have a sense of self and self esteem that based on who we are and how we see ourselves. So I feel like the reason I say I see this as collecting culture is because we are all trying to financialize something that is kind of bringing us together in in an emotional way that oh all of us are 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 uh, let's say like all of us have beards for example so you have like a community around beards a bunch of people or oh, like you know like what are the struggles you have what is the interest or uh, what you know like what what products you use so i feel like there's so we do that in like everyday life you know people have like um uh, hair routines people have they like to buy sneakers that like look alike or or they like to buy clothes that are low i like to wear tight fitted jeans or i like to be wear baggy jeans and i feel like that's because it it represents an aspect of who you are as a person it also rep- represents how how you want the world to perceive you and that's what i see nfts as uh um as an element of culture because these nfts look like something you buy a particular pfp because it represents something you know uh it it stands by something but it's also about how you want the world to to perceive it if that is the identity that you wish to to choose or those are the ed- nfts that you identify yourself with even if it's not your identity but you hold it in your wallet and you're like oh this person is is collecting art or he's been holding art or she's been holding art for so long or they like a 3D glasses crypto punk or they like a mohawk um, board ape and why is it that they resonate with it oh this person actually owns uh, this person is a male and he owns a female crypto punk as well and you ask them why do they do that and they're like oh i want to gift it to my daughter when she grows up uh, one day so i feel like there's this whole like emotional connection that is being built that is native to the digital world because a lot of the the the, the groups that came in history were based on just going back to what i was saying a herd of sheep is based on the way you biologically look so you can control it and that's how a lot of groups and communities existed in the past when when women and men were separated they did so because there was some commonalities they found with each other people made like groups with like their skin colors their their uh, ethnicity and things like that because that's that's what they they were born with and everything but now in the digital world you have all these traits and parameters that are just like your genders that are just like your ethnicities that are just like your skin color or whatever but they're native to this digital space where oh like you know like it's not about skin color it's about oh are you a murakami drip or are you like alien dna and stuff and i think i find that super fascinating because rather than trying to replicate the same model from the physical world which we've struggled with which we've had issues with with sexism and 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 racism and all these things that we are changing the 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 whole narrative and bringing traits and parameters but actually that trump all those ideologies and i wonder i wonder if we will see and this is a bizarre conversation to have but i wonder if 10 years later where people's complete identities are based on their pfps and people go through tribalism of you didn't get offered a job because you were a board ape holder they just don't like board apes or they just are anti cc0 so they don't 
like to associate themselves with moonbirds. I wonder if this would happen. I wonder if it's our, our human need to kind of like always engage in tribalism. So it's it's fascinating. And I feel like that's what I see culture that's native to the digital space rather than just trying to replicate from those physical space. And we are collecting it. We are owning it. We are owning digital sneakers. We are owning uh, art. We are owning digital identities. And I think it's it's a lot more interesting to me as as an asset class than just like a bunch of ERC20 tokens. Like I do that only for the money, but I'm collecting culture because it's fun. It, it brings us together. Like next in two weeks, I'm going in actually 10 days. I'm flying to Hong Kong for Bode Festival. I have like these groups already of like 50 people where we all are already connecting with each other. We're going to have breakfast and lunches and dinners. We're going to give each other our stickers and our badges. And like, like we are literally just connected on, on, groups on twitter just because we have the same board ape i don't know who they are i don't know if they're 15 or 35 or like you know what gender do they belong to or do they identify as anything like i know nothing about them but we are just like you're a board ape holder i'm a board ape holder we are vibing <laughs> i love this this is so like these are the types of conversations that like, give me hope and that remind me of yes there's something there this is human glue i, I first got in in 2017 and so it was all about ERC-20s and ICOs. And in 2021, NFTs came back on top because I remember like I bought CryptoKitties in 2017 and I, I remember people were talking about CryptoPunks then they were, they were minting them. I can't believe I faded them. And when they came back on my radar, I thought, wow, this is the thing that makes us uh, come together and stick together. And, and you're articulating it in a, in a way that I love. Man, thank you so much for being here. If you've listened to this incredible conversation, the two hour and 15 uh, long <laughs> conversation, then congratulations. You should definitely check out Raheem. He's honestly one of the best people to follow on social media because he's, he's always just so kind and wholesome and positive and, and also critical, but in the, in the good sense, in the sense that makes us grow and makes us move forward as a group. So check him out. If you like this, don't forget to like, to follow, to uh, recommend this to a friend of yours. And don't forget to join our discord because that's where a lot of cool stuff uh, are happening. Thank you so much for listening. Raheem, thank you so much for doing this. You're most welcome. Thank you for having me. My absolute pleasure. Thank <laughs> you.